Throughout Christ's ministry, he called people to follow him, to deny self in pursuit of Christ above all else. But what is Christ's call to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow him mean for us today? Is this call made to the neglect of all other earthly responsibilities? The gospel of Jesus has implications for every part of our lives, and we must learn what these are if we are to faithfully follow him. In Mark's gospel, we will learn of the kingdom of God and our part in it. We'll see Christ's identity as the suffering servant, his authority as the son of God, and what each of these mean for those who call Christ Lord. As we look at the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we'll see what it means to grow as his disciples and lay down our lives as we follow him. Good morning again. If we have not met, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you just saw in that video, we are doing a series in the Gospel of Mark right now. So I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones. It's on page 491. As you're turning there, my question for you today is what kind of food do you like? You can shout it out if you, if you want. That's what I was waiting for. Strawberry pizza. Great. Chocolate. You should have come on Friday, Harvest. So my favorite foods, I should have known not to ask for responses. My favorite food is summarized in Thanksgiving. You got your mashed potatoes, you've got your green bean casserole if it's cooked well and not from a can. You got turkey, but believe it or not, the turkey does not have to be dry. I learned that this past year. But the weird thing that I've learned about family meals, especially holiday meals, is how the tables get separated. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the kids' table. That's what I thought. Everyone has at some point in their life been relegated to the kids' table. The difficulty is at some point, all those kids that were at the kids' table are now adults with kids of their own. And it seems like no matter how old you get, there's always some setting where you still end up being relegated and stuck at the kids' table. Well, today we're going to look at a little bit of what it means uh, or some of the difference of, of what it takes to get to sit at the grown-up table versus being stuck sitting at even lower than the kids' table. Now, last week, uh, I went and stopped at all the kids' uh, classes and asked them to come and tell me hi when they walked in here today. So if you were a kid that was here last weekend, I just want to say hi. Can you guys show me how you guys say hi back? Hola, there it is. Someone said they were going to say hola. Thanks, Harvest. All right, so we're going to be in Mark 7. I'd like to invite, invite you to grab your Bibles and turn there. Once you have it, please yell out to me, I got it. Perfect. Now, will you please stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning? Really briefly, the reason that I ask you to stand is, is as God's Word is read throughout the Bible, what, what, uh, in a couple instances, what it tells us to do is God's people stood out of respect and admiration for the reading and honoring of God's Word. So that's why I'm asking you to stand. If you uh, have your Bible, it should look something like this. The big number uh, right there is the chapter number. And then if you look at the little numbers beside those, those are verse markers. So if this is your first time in here, welcome. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7, which should look something like that. Hear the word of the Lord with me. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. 
And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, All foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. And came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. As you're seated, I invite you to pray with me once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you continue providing for us and pray that you would continue providing for us even now as we study and learn from your word. May it transform us from the inside out and make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Where we're going to begin this section is looking at the Pharisees once again and see their lack of heart and compassion toward other people. So last week, Pastor Micah reminded us of the way God provides for his people, especially the provision in the wilderness. This passage opens with focusing back on the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes have kind of been out of the picture for a little while. The last time we saw them was in Mark chapter 3, so we're a few chapters beyond them. And what they were doing back then was looking for ways to accuse and contradict what Jesus was doing. 
They saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath, and then they went out and colluded with the Herodians to try to kill Jesus, and then the scribes were the ones who were accusing Jesus of being from Beelzebul. In this case, once again, they're looking for opportunities to fight against Jesus. They're not trying to chat from him. They're not trying to learn from him. They're coming with ammunition to use against him. And in this story, it doesn't take long for them to find an issue. The issue was the disciples didn't wash their hands before dinner. Now, quick show of hands. How many of you have to wash your hands before you eat dinner? You guys all have very good parents, very wise parents. There's a biological reason for that. You can get sick if you ingest the wrong things. Now, imagine with me that not only would you get sick by not doing that, but on top of that, people at church also told you that you would be sinful if you tried to go eat without washing your hands. How much worse do you think it would be if you then forgot to wash your hands, if suddenly you were contaminated and and a sinful, terrible human being? Jesus actually goes on to to talk about what this idea is. They actually ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders. So they're trying to have a debate or discussion with Jesus connected directly to tradition. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we have God's written word, which is referred to in Jewish times as the Torah. But in the first century, what they had compiled in addition to the written word was what is known as the Mishnah. Try saying that one five times fast, the Mishnah. These were the oral laws. So the things that they said that that the law, the written law that God gave was not clear enough. So they came up with the Mishnah, the oral law that helped people figure out how it was they were supposed to obey all of the rules that God had given. And what they did with the Mishnah is, is they took the rule right here and then created multiple fences around that rule just to ensure that no one ever actually got close enough to break any of the rules accidentally. Now, one of the rules that they actually talked about in part of this oral law was proper cleaning procedures, all the way down to individual items in the home. For example, did you know that a bowl will retain uncleanliness, but a plate will not because it's flat? Or a soft surface, so clothes or something like a mattress would retain uncleanliness, but a hard surface like a shovel would not. And then how do you do if the shovel is like concave, will that collect? It was a mess to try to figure it out. So the Pharisees and the scribes have their opportunity here. They ask Jesus why his disciples are are just completely dismissive of all these oral traditions. Now, notice that they ask him about his disciples, not Jesus. What they're acknowledging and recognizing is either that Jesus did not participate in this ritualistic, like, uncleanliness, or they're acknowledging that he is responsible for his disciples' actions. Now, does Jesus play their game? Does Jesus answer their question? He hardly even acknowledges it. He takes the question that they're asking him and brings it to its underlying issue. That is, where does authority come from? So they're appealing to the oral law. Jesus here is going to go and appeal to the written law, Isaiah 29, 13, to demonstrate to us and to them the unique role that God's written word should have for all of us. Now, one of the repeated words throughout this section, if you were paying attention carefully, is the word tradition. Tradition. So we're going to be comparing and contrasting what is the tradition versus what is God's specific written word. Now, notice that that Jesus compares, verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of man. So commandment versus tradition. And and Jesus actually continues here in verse 9, you should read this as, as just absolutely dripping with sarcasm because he's repeating a word that he used earlier. So if you look at verse Uh, six here, 
it says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? When you get to verse 9, it says, you, uh, he uses the same word for a fine way, so think of it like you have done well at rejecting the commandment of God. So he's bringing this written law down to bear as an indictment against these Pharisees and scribes. And in this case, he's regarding what has been washed, what has been clean or not, but Jesus even goes on, he doesn't even like deal with the washing issue, he goes on to deal with a specific modern context that they would have been well known about. So verse 10, he starts quoting Moses. Now, Moses was a prophet of God. He spoke on behalf of God to his people. And in a few different places throughout the Old Testament, they, there are explicit commands to honor and respect your parents. So Jesus quotes from a couple of them, from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. These verses are, are just all over uh, the Old Testament. But the Pharisees had taken this idea that you are supposed to honor and respect your parents and, and kind of changed, it, changed everything about it on its head. So they have said this Mishnah, this oral tradition, these things that had been passed down through generations, verse 11, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. Corbin. This is a, think of that word as essentially a will. So you get to determine, set aside a certain amount of money that is going to be dedicated to the service of God at some point in the future. And then, if that, that money had been set aside for that specific purpose, it was not allowed to be used for anything else, which could potentially mean that someone's parents were left absolutely destitute, because the retirement account for thousands of years up until the modern era was called children. The reason you had kids was to help provide for you as you got older. So then, if you have a, a child who is refusing to take care of their parents, if they just label their money as Corbin, that at some point in the future it will be given to God, then they could use it for whatever purposes they wanted to until they died, leaving their parents out in the cold. Now, notice that, that verse 13, there's just an unbelievable indictment that Jesus gives against these scribes. He says, They are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Making void the word of God by your tradition. As is, this isn't the only example, he says, many such things do you do. He just picks one that is just like a low-hanging fruit there. Now, what we're getting at here, again, we're talking about tradition versus God's word. There's a quote that, that I read a number of years ago that has stuck with me that, that I think is very helpful for this conversation for us today. Um, now, he's going to take it and use it a little bit different than the way uh, Jesus is using the word tradition in this text, but it triggered this, this quote in my mind. Uh, a Yale professor named Yaroslav Pelikan said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism, which is what the Pharisees and scribes have been doing, is the dead faith of the living. Let me read that again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. That is faith that has been handed down through generations. Traditionalism, that is elevating your tradition to the state, same status as the word of God, is the dead faith of the living. How helpful do you think dead faith is? Not at all. Useless. Living faith is what, is what we're aiming for. Living faith is what, what brings us to life. It's what has been passed down through multiple, multiple generations all the way back to Jesus himself. And so I, I started just thinking about, about some of the uh, traditionalism that I have, have dealt with in my uh, 11 years of ministry now. One of them is uh, altar calls. Should we have altar calls? Now, there's a time and a place for them. They have been helpful for people. I know people who have been legitimately converted by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit because of an altar call. But I think there's a tendency to use an altar call as a way to stir up emotions in people. 
So you play just as I am on repeat until everyone is walking back down the aisle once again, asking Jesus into their heart every single week. That's, not, that's tradition. That is not something that we need to hold on to and do in perpetuity. Uh, let's talk about clothing. Um, when I was growing up, you had to wear a certain specific style of clothing when you went to church. And if you didn't, you could barely walk in the door. So I got to the point where, where I would ask my parents every week if I had to only bring church clothes or if I could bring change clothes to church. Change clothes, like my parents would say, you can bring clothes to change into. So I took them like normal clothes as change clothes. Now, just note, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking or wearing certain clothes. But some of us have elevated specific clothing to a level that, that it should not be held to. Um, what about music? Anyone have opinions about music? And music is a funny one because it's, 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 it's so much about personal preference. Believe it or not, there is not a God-ordained style of music. And I think that is intentional. Like if, if you would, were to go back and listen to the type of music that David was playing on his lyre and his harp when he was composing the Psalms, I'm guessing none of you would like it very much. Just going to throw it out there. Like, and, and I mean, this is one, as a former uh, worship, or recovering, I'll say, recovering worship pastor, I have all sorts of stories that I could share with you. I thought I'd pick one of them because I have a picture of it. So this is, uh, notice at the very top says prayer request. So this is a prayer request that someone just, just anonymously dropped in a box at a previous church I was at. There, there was no name attached to it, but I know who it was. I'll just say that. Here is the prayer request. I shouldn't have to pray for at least one hymn in each service. Young people will never learn the wonderful messages they bring. The praise songs don't teach anything but praise, and that is not enough. Why? The only thing I'm surprised about is it was not checked. Please place this request on the prayer chain. <laughs> now, it's not bad to pray for music that you like, but if that's the only thing you're praying for on a Sunday, I think your priorities might be a little bit out of whack. So instead of focusing on, on the kind and style and genre of music that we like, what if we prayed that the music that we were singing was honoring and acceptable to Jesus? That it helped stir our emotions and our affections and our minds to think God's thoughts after him. Um, and, and I mean, some of the reason I, I share this as well is, is uh, how, do we, how do we even engage something that we disagree with? Because there's a, a good way and a right way and a wrong way to pursue some of these things. Um, if, if just, I'm, I'll tell you, if you ever write an anonymous note to me, I will throw it away without reading it. If anyone has an issue, what the Bible actually commands us to do is go to each other one-on-one. -on -one. And if we can't do that in the church and be a safe place where we can actually have disagreements and love each other and extend forgiveness, then we have no hope of asking the world around us to, to act similarly towards us. So that's, that's music, and I can talk about music all day if we wanted to. Uh, what about playing cards? Uh, my dad and I were one time playing cards at my grandma's house, and uh, we were playing hearts. Like, it wasn't, we weren't playing like, poker or any like sinful card games. Um, <laughs> And my grandma watched out and saw us playing hearts, and she said, oh man, I can't believe I have hearts in my house. When I was growing up, I was not allowed to play them. That's adding tradition onto what we as Christians are, are, should be doing, what it means to be a good Christian. Uh, but then the irony is I found out she was allowed to go dancing. And I mean, a whole host of stories that my grandma has of going swing dancing with my, my grandpa when they were dating and going through that. But dancing was one of those things that Christians were not allowed to do for a long time. Uh, what about uh, watching movies? Are we as Christians, should we go to the movie theater? I, I remember hearing stories of I wouldn't want God to return and, and find me sitting in a movie theater, living a normal life. I even remember hearing a pastor one time, a, a retired pastor was uh, doing pulpit fill at a, a church I was working at. He used the movie as an illustration and then said, now I know I'm not supposed to be watching movies. 
Like, think of some of those traditions. Some of you are laughing because you grew up with them. You under, understand how all these pieces work. What are those traditions that we have added into what, what the Bible actually tells or commands us to do and be? One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, writing uh, second century, said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors, which you can summarize, or, or the way Tim Keller summarizes it, is between religion and irreligion. So religion on this side says, here's all the rules that you must obey if you want to be saved. The other side, your religion says, there's nothing I can do. So because I'm saved, I can go live however I want. Think of legalism versus licentiousness. Think of uh, living like a Christian, uh, or living according to all the rules or not caring about all the rules at all. Now, I like, I like the way Tim Keller summarizes this, actually. He says, religion says that we have to live a holy good life in order to be saved. Your religion, the other side, says that because we are saved, we don't have to live a holy, good life. Now, both of those are problems. Both of those are erroneous. And the reality is the gospel cuts through both of these and can't be summarized by either of them. Jesus says you can't save yourself, so come to him. And then Jesus goes on to say because you are saved, now you can live a holy and good life. Now, both of these things are problems. We can't just say we're saved and then go live however we want, which, which cuts against some of the hyper-individualism of our culture, where people say, how dare you tell me what to do? But we also can't say that in order to be saved, you must live, act, or dress a certain way, which cuts against everyone's impulses. Because all of us, it's much easier, honestly, to just say, tell me what I have to do, give me the checkboxes that I have to go through, the procedures, the processes, and I'll do it. The problem is, everything's already been done. There's nothing else for us to do. Jesus took care of all of that. And now because of that, we can live a life that is fully surrendered and, and uh, acknowledging who Jesus is and what he has done and the implications for all of our lives. So after giving this smackdown to the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus goes on to talk about the heart of the matter. So Jesus summarizes this conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes by bringing the crowd near to him and telling him that holiness, which, which is purity or cleanliness, isn't a matter of following all the rules perfectly. They have the order reversed. They said what comes in is what defiles a person, when what Jesus says is what comes out is what defiles a person. Now, uh, Calvin and Ellie and Harvest, can you guys come up here and help me for a second? Yeah, you, come here. You don't want to? Ellie, you want to come up? And Harvest? And Eden, I need, I need your help with an illustration here. Ellie, can you grab my coffee cup right there under the chair? Yeah, you too, you too. Come up, come walk up here. Thanks, Elsbells. Very careful. Yep, bring it on up. Thank you. Can you go stand by Harvest and Eden? All right, so imagine I had a piping full cup of coffee here, and I was walking along, and you guys all bumped into me. What would happen? Do you think the coffee would, would spill out? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what would happen. So would that be your fault? Yeah, because, well, yeah, if we took the lid off. So if you, yeah, there is coffee in there, and that would hurt, wouldn't it? So would that be your fault or my fault? Your fault. My, thanks, Eden. <laughs> All right, you guys can go sit down. That's actually a perfect illustration. Thanks, Eden. <laughs> what the Pharisees would say is the opposite of what Eden just told me, and that is that if someone were to bump into me, that's their fault. What, what Jesus tells us is the opposite is true, because all they're doing is, is releasing or, or spilling out the things that were already in my heart. So if someone comes into you and bumps into you, 
And what comes out is anger or bitterness or slander or, or whatever list of vices you want to go down. It's revealing much more about you than it is about them. Remember a, a quote that my dad had, uh, he told me about it when he was growing up from Chuck Swindoll, who said, life is 90% what happens to you, and, and, or sorry, 90% how you react to it and 10% what happens to you. So how, how are you going to react when, when something bad, difficult, someone pushes you? What is it that, that comes out to you? When someone bumps you, Jesus says, it, it is my fault, just like Eden said, because you don't have to be unclean. You can actually put your trust and hope and confidence in him and then be cleansed. So after Jesus talks to the crowd, the disciples, verse 17, ask him about this parable, this, this story. And it's, Jesus' answer is, is kind of weird because he gives them a basic biology lesson. So what he talks about is like the internal biology of, of what comprises a person. So he, he compares the cardiovascular system, like the heart, the blood, and what goes through our bodies, to our digestive system. Now those two things are related in that the blood goes throughout our entire body, but when we eat food, it doesn't go directly to our, our bloodstream, nor does the bloodstream go directly to our food. So what the Pharisees had done is they'd taken all these rules, these, these restrictions, these regulations, and, and said, you must do these things if you want to be a pure, holy person. You have to eat a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. You have to walk a certain way. You have to work a certain way. And if you don't, then you are unclean. But Jesus says that is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> So thinking specifically about food is one of the ones that Jesus, Jesus emphasize, or Mark emphasizes here. He says, do, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled? Now, one of the things that we rejoice and praise God for is that we can now eat pork. You get to eat bacon, sausage, and like not turkey bacon, that stuff's gross. But you can thank Jesus for what he has done in declaring all foods clean. But not only will food not defile you anymore, what can defile you is already found in the heart. That is, when Jesus talks about the heart, he's referring to the center of your being. And he talks about a long list of issues that come out of the heart. He says, 21, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of those things are coming from what is in your heart. Now, once again, Jesus is reminding us that we don't pursue like these sinful traits, lack, act them out, throw up a quick confession, and then go back to our old sinful ways. Instead, these external traits, what comes out, what you say, reveals the current status of your heart, which determines whether you're clean or dirty. See, the difficulty, though, is it's way harder to diagnose a heart issue and way easier to get what looks like obedience by just following the right rules, which is legalism. It's creating a fence around the law so you don't even have to get close to breaking the rules. Now, I almost hate to talk about this, but one of the best examples in, in uh, my lifetime was, uh, took place a few years ago with the Duggar family. If you don't know what happened, uh, they were the stars of, of first 17 kids and counting, then 18 kids and counting, and then 19 kids and counting, and then I think they stopped. But it was revealed a number of years ago that uh, Josh, the oldest brother, had abused his sisters as they were growing up. Now, if you followed the, the legalistic ideas, that absolutely should never have happened. They were sheltered from all the bad influences in the world. They weren't allowed to watch TV shows. The internet in their house was completely filtered. They were only allowed to wear specific and modest clothing. They weren't allowed to date or court, not sure what title they used, without a chaperone. So how could such a terrible thing happen? It's because sin isn't something we need to be sheltered from. Sin is something we need to be delivered from. See, we have a tendency to view discipleship as, as protection from, like, don't do this list of rules. Instead, we need to view discipleship, which, I mean, we had a great picture of, of the best place for discipleship, which is parenting, 
Discipleship is meant to be equipping and training our kids to overcome the world through Jesus. See, a list of rules will never be enough to transform a sinful heart. For that, we actually need a Savior. Now, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, today is a great day to do that. Throughout the book of Acts, uh, we see people hearing the message of, of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, and asking the question, what do I need to do to be saved? The answer is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you are saved, Jesus' heart towards you now becomes tender and compassionate. Pursuing holiness, living the way that God intended us to live, suddenly becomes a joy instead of a burden, and that's demonstrated by the rest of this chapter. So we've seen Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and then demonstrates the heart of God first toward a Gentile woman. This section begins, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, again, we're back at this map. Tyre is way up here and Sidon is so far north that it doesn't even fit on this map that I've regularly been using. Now, this is a bit of an alarming text, just from first glance at it. This text actually went viral on TikTok about three years ago from someone saying that Jesus was racist. So as you read through this text and and, and understand the first century context, it looks like Jesus is heartless, racist, and demeaning towards this woman. He doesn't look like the kind and compassionate person that we've come to know him as throughout this gospel. Now, we need to note the bigger context of what's taking place. Last week, we saw or or listened to a story of thousands being fed by a lunchable. From there, Jesus goes and walks on water, and then Mark tells us that after Jesus had walked on water, the disciples still have hard hearts towards Jesus and what he was doing. So bread in this uh, story is in demonstration of God's provision. For those of us who are in Christ, we have no spiritual needs. We lack nothing because God has and will continue to provide. But guess what? That first feeding that we read of 5,000 is only the first time Jesus provides for the masses because next week we'll be looking at the only slightly less miraculous feeding of 4,000 people. And then smack dab in the middle of those two stories is this woman who has a conversation with Jesus about bread. Now, once again, Jesus is, is withdrawing, trying to get away from the crowds to teach and spend time with his disciples and recharge. But his fame has spread so far that even the Gentiles want to be with him now. But this woman isn't just described as a Gentile. She's actually described as a Syrophoenician woman by birth. That is an avowed enemy opposed to the nation of Israel. So that means she is the worst of the worst And this woman's daughter is afflicted by an evil spirit who torments her. Now, we should be thinking and and contrasting this person with Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue from a few weeks ago who had a daughter in a similar position. Mark is intentionally trying to compare here between those who are in and those who are out. And this woman serves as an example as as far out as you can possibly get. A Gentile living in a Gentile territory and born as a sworn enemy of Israel. But she knows that there's something unique about Jesus that demands a response from her. Now, before we look at the whole conversation, we actually need to go back a few books of the Bible to 1 Kings 17 to a prophet named Elijah. Elijah lived in a rough time in Israel's history. He was a prophet serving under a corrupt king who just wanted power. His wife was literally Jezebel, the first Jezebel, who was a vindictive, conniving woman. She brought the worship of a false god named Baal to Israel and introduced it in a place called Tyre. That's where Jesus is right here. Elijah heard a message from the Lord that there would be a three-year drought in Israel that would wipe out much of the economy of the land, but the king still didn't repent. So then God leads Elijah to Sidon, where we're again at in today's story, to a Gentile widow who was used to feed Elijah. And just as God provided for the thousands in Mark, God provided flour and oil for this widow and her family to get them through the entire drought. 
Yet shortly after the provision of food, the woman's son died. And God again provided for her through Elijah raising her son back to life. Do you think that maybe that story would have been passed down through the generations in this area of Tyre and Sidon? So that this woman knew that if a prophet from God came, there was hope, there was potential for healing and provision. Think of the state of both, both of these little children. So Jairus' daughter is dead. This little daughter is afflicted by a demon. Do you think maybe his, her mother wished the child would be dead to spare her from her misery? Now, one of the uh, commentators, a pastor named J.C. Ryle, wrote on this, that hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, this little girl had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. I think of, of my own grandma. Um, she had to take in one of her nephews because uh, her, her brother was an alcoholic and couldn't handle taking care of the kid. Um, the day he died, she was woken up in the middle of the night uh, and was just had this overwhelming burden to start praying for him. And uh, he got in the car drunk and drove and, and killed himself. But she is still, she said, I don't know why I woke up. It was the exact time that he was out driving and about to, about to kill himself. Um, and we don't know what kinds of things we have been spared from because of Grandma's regular and consistent prayers for us. So for any of you, no, no matter how desperate or, or far-fetched it, it, it appears, don't stop praying. So with all that background in mind about this woman, about Elijah, about how God has worked throughout history, look at what Jesus says to her. Verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, the derog dog is a derogatory way of referring to the Gentiles. So in the first century, the Jewish writings would refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now, when we read dogs today, what we think of is like a household pet that we play with and go play fetch with. What, what the Israelites would have thought of a dog is, is essentially the way we think of rats or mice today, like gross, disease-infested mongrels that you don't want anything to do with. So Jesus here is, is telling this woman that his primary mission, his primary focus, is to the Israelites, God's chosen people. They have to be fed first, which they just had, if you remember the previous chapter, with miraculous food and fish being given to them. And it's wrong to try to feed the dogs when the children are going hungry. Now, first glance, it seems like Jesus is just being mean and demeaning to her. But the woman is shown to know exactly who Jesus is, exactly who she's talking to. In Matthew's account of this story, she actually calls out to Jesus three different times, referring to him as the Lord, the son of David. This woman, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, unlike the crowd, and unlike even the disciples at this point, she has no doubt, no confusion, and no hard heart. Peter's confession hasn't even happened yet. Like that, In two weeks, we'll get to Peter for the first time confessing who Jesus actually is. This Gentile woman acknowledges who Jesus really is before the disciples are even aware and acknowledging who Jesus really is. Now, in Jesus' reply to this woman, it seems that he tips her off to an underlying message that he's trying to communicate. Kind of like when you go pick on someone and then wink at them as you're saying it. Remember who else is with Jesus right here? His disciples. So as he talks to this woman, he's using it to teach a lesson to them. So it's almost like he's answering the woman while he's staring directly at his followers. Because this is exactly how they would have referred to this woman, if they had even acknowledged that she exists. In Matthew's account of this, the woman is so persistent that the disciples beg Jesus to just get rid of her. So what's Jesus' underlying message that she goes for? One word, first. Her reply is, give them all they want. If the only thing that's available to me is crumbs, I want the crumbs. I heard one pastor talking about this passage say she heard Jesus reply and said, so you're saying there's a chance. 
One translation, Jesus, uh, 29. For this statement, you may go on your way. Uh, the NLT, I love the way it's, it summarized Jesus' uh, response to her. He says, good answer. She demonstrates the faith that is needed to put trust in Jesus. If the only thing that I can get right now is crumbs, give me the crumbs. Church, don't miss this. Even the crumbs of God are better than a full meal of earthly goods. The crumbs will last forever. Everything else will fade away. And crumbs are, from God are enough to satisfy even the deepest longings and desires of your heart. But then Jesus goes on to give crumbs to one more person. So once again, we're, we're told a specific location here. It says, He returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. So we started up here in Tyre, went up the long way around, down here to the Decapolis. So going all the way around, similar to where he cast out the demon, uh, demons into the herd of pigs a couple weeks ago. So it takes a long way around to go to the Decapolis, which is just a Greek word for ten, ten cities. Similar to the previous story, he's once again not going to get a break, because as soon as, as people find out that he's there, they flock to him. This time, people bring a man who was deaf and had a talking issue in order to be healed by Jesus. Now, what's interesting, I think, is he takes the man away privately. He, he doesn't treat this person as, as a project. He doesn't treat this person as a problem. He deals with him one-on-one -on -one as, as a person. And then we read what, what appears to be something weird that, that Jesus does, right? Like he gives him a wet willy in his ears then spits on his hand and touches that to his tongue. Um, I stumbled across another pastor who, who talked about this. What Jesus is doing is communicating to the man in the way that he needed to be communicated to. So Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, the man could not hear Jesus and he was also incapable of verbal communication. So Jesus spoke to him in the language he could understand, sign language. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. The spitting and the touching of the man's tongue meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The glance up to heaven meant, it is God alone who was able to do this for you. Jesus wanted the man to understand that it was not magic, but God's grace that healed him. So that's what Jesus is doing. Touches, touches ears, touches tongue. Looking up to heaven, Jesus sighs. And that's a pregnant word in this text. Jesus sighs. You could also translate that word as, as uh, groans. What do you think was behind that groan or that sigh? See, ears blocked up and an inability to talk are not the way things are supposed to be. When God created the world, everything was very good. All these other issues come about because of the effects of sin in our broken world today. And the result of this miracle is the same response to God's initial creation in the world. Verse 37, it says, They are astonished beyond all measure. He has done all things well. So just in the initial creation, God looks at everything that he created and says it's very good. When Jesus comes and, and ushers in this new creation, people around him look and say, it's very good. See, the result of this miracle is, is the same as, as God's response when he first created us. Everlasting peace has actually been brought into the world. Everything is as it should be once again. These miracles demonstrate the joy that comes from living as children of God. Because God and Jesus, who is God, does everything well, there's hope for all of our lives to be restored and renewed. It might not happen on this side of eternity, but it is guaranteed to come. Because God has provided everything we need and then some. If, and only if, we put our faith in Him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank You that everything You do is good. We thank You for the ways that You have worked about to bring salvation the ways that you bring healing, the ways that you bring restoration and reconciliation to people.
people who seem so far from you that there's no hope they would ever turn to you. Pray that we as your people would continue taking steps of faith towards you, that we wouldn't elevate our own individual traditions, but instead would, would submit ourselves to your specific commands in all of our lives. May we find ways or, or areas where we are prone to not trust that what you have given us is, is good enough and remove that from our lives. Help us to keep our eyes, our gaze, our minds, our focus fixed on you. And may you conform us into your image day by day. God, I thank you for all the children who are in this room today and, and pray that as they grow up, they would, they would never have a time in their, in their memories where they didn't know who you were. They would grow to love you from a young age, that they would be uh, through the, the influence of their family and church family would be uh, knowing what it means to follow after you with their whole hearts. Provide for them everything they need and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.